Today we're going to continue to read from Galatians. Read from Galatians. I want to turn back to the end of Galatians chapter 3. As Paul closes Galatians 3, you're going to notice that the theme really does shift full throttle over to a contrast between being a son of God in line for an inheritance. A contrast between that and being a slave or a servant, included in which is what it means to be under the law. You're a slave if you are under the law. And Paul's going to begin to contrast those two things. Really, that's going to be what I'm going to talk about today. We might entitle this message, Sonship versus Slavery. And I want to begin reading again in verse 26 of chapter 3 of Galatians. Remember when Paul talks about being children of God, essentially that also does mean sonship, doesn't it? Sonship under God and being children of God are the same thing. He says in Galatians 3.26, he says, For you are all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, incidentally, before I move forward, just as an aside, a lot of talk today with all this spirituality, some of which is Eastern mysticism and the like that has crept into the church. A lot of talk today about movements such as Oprah and her church and the like. It says right here very clearly that you are all children of God by faith in Christ. And as we're going to read, it says, you're in Christ. if you are in Christ, you are a child of God. You're not a child of God or a son of God for any other reason or cause except you be in Christ. And what I'm getting at is this. You are going to more and more hear about the fact that we are all children of God just because we're human beings. That is not the truth. The Bible doesn't teach it. If you are an unconverted human being, basically what you are is a son of Adam. And that's a dead race. You are a son of God if you are born again into the family of God through Jesus Christ. And that's the only reason. There is salvation in no other name given under heaven except it be in Christ. And as we've been reading in Galatians and will continue to read, everything that God has for humanity coming from his self is found only in Christ Jesus. Nothing outside of him. Now that's not because God's narrow-minded. The fact that there's one way to God is not because God is narrow-minded, because he invites all to come that one way. And that's, of course, the message of the gospel. Well, he says here, for you, speaking to converted people, the Galatians in this case, that's the context, you are all the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And then he says how that came to be. He says, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ. Now again, as we go along, another aside, got to pay attention to terminology here in words. He's not saying if you have just been baptized with water and gone through a ceremony, No, he says, if you have been baptized into Christ himself. Notice the analogy here that Paul's drawing. What does it mean to be baptized into Christ? Well, what is baptism? It's immersion into a body of water, 
Well, if you've been baptized into Christ, it means that you have been immersed into Christ himself. And I've said so often, what is Christianity? Christianity is Christ in us. Christianity is us in Christ. It is a oneness. It is a spiritual union between a human being's spirit and the spirit of God. That's the core of salvation. That's what it means to be baptized into Christ. It means to be made one with him. Now this will be important as we'll see as we move forward today to understand that. For as many of you that have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And then he says in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Jesus Christ. Because you've all been baptized into Christ. And then verse 29, which will lead us into chapter 4. And if you be Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise of God. And just as a 10-second review, if you'll remember when I gave the message on Abraham's seed, if you were here that day, the seed of Abraham is Jesus Christ. That essentially was the promise of a Savior, of a Messiah, that God was giving to Abraham. He would come through Isaac and through the Jewish nation. But the seed of Abraham is Christ, and all the promises go to that seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. We become co-heirs with Christ only if we are in Christ. So again, we see there isn't Christ getting a bunch of inheritance. There isn't us over here getting a bunch of inheritance. No, there's just Christ getting inheritance. And if we're in him, then we share all of it. It's only by our association with and our oneness in Christ that we partake of all that God has for mankind. There's a lot to that, and it's ground I've covered before, but it's important to review that moving forward in what I'm going to read here. Now, forget that there is a chapter division because those aren't inspired. They were put in the 13th century, I think. And so when Paul says, if you be Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise, this is all the same thought starting chapter 4. He says, now I say that an heir, now remember, he just told us we are fellow heirs with Christ by virtue of the fact that we are in Christ. And now he's going to start to elaborate upon what it means to be an heir. He says, now I say an heir, as long as he is a child, really doesn't differ a whole lot from a slave or a servant, even though he is Lord of all, potentially, by virtue of the fact that he's an heir. So picture in this big house, with all these possessions that are to be passed down to heirs, picture these little kids running around that stand to inherit all the possessions of the person who at that point is the father. Paul is saying, well, that little child is an heir, but really at that point in that little child's life, how much good does it do them to be an heir? Really, they're not going to be able to even know what their inheritance is all about at that point, are they? Because they're more interested in watching Barney or whatever and, and getting into their Legos out. So you can tell them all they want to know about Legos and Barney, but you start talking to 
this heir, who is maybe three years old, five years old, about all they're going to inherit. And the best case scenario is going to be that it's going to go right over their head. They're not going to have a clue. And that's why Paul says, well, they're not in a position, growth-wise, to, to um, benefit from that inheritance any more than a slave would at that point, even though they are, by identity, an heir. He says in verse 2, but these heirs at that point are under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. And in some cases, the father wouldn't have to die for the inheritance to be passed along. He could give a portion or all of it while that child was living, and that would be that time appointed. And then he says, but this really is what applies to us, this example. He says, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. The elements of the world is a complicated term from classical, ancient Greek, rather. It simply means to be governed by the ABCs of the universe. It means to be governed and think and walk and live like people do. In other words, you live, you make a living, uh, and the normal person really isn't all that conscious of God. This is just the way human beings live, born in Adam, and you can add to it the law of God if you want a little later uh, to keep things in a better order because he's saying we were under, we were children under bondage to the elements of the world. And he says, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law because Jesus was born a Jew and the Jews were under the Old Testament law. He says, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, you are no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Now, just to stop there for a second. Notice all the present tense here. Paul's very aware that we're not going to move into the fullness of inheritance until we die and move on into the eternal ages. In other places, he explains how we do have a down payment now on a fuller uh, expression of inheritance uh, for the eternal ages. But if you read verses 4, 5, 6, and 7, what you see there very clearly is that something has changed in God's dealings with his people because of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> we might call that change, to make it more simple, a change of covenants. I went through this as well in a prior message. The Old Covenant, God says in Hebrews 8, in Jeremiah 31, is different than the New Covenant. In fact, he says it is. He says, the time is coming, thus saith the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. Not like the covenant that I established with the house of Israel when I brought them forth out of Egypt. He says, then, what is different about the new covenant in, in comparison to the old? He says, the new, in the new covenant, I will do everything on the inside of people. I will write my law on their hearts, on their minds. That's what's different between the new covenant and the old. In the Old Covenant, God said, here's a bunch of laws that you need to keep. And if you do, this will happen. If you don't, this will happen. Rituals, sacrifices, offerings, temple, all this kind of stuff. And within that, people could have faith. They could have a moral law and be saved under those terms. 
God says the day is coming when all of that is going to be stepped up eternally. An, an eternal notch it's going to be stepped up. And everything that this speaks of, that the old covenant speaks of, I'm going to make real. That's why he says in Hebrews, or rather in Colossians, he says, the law... All that old covenant was a shadow of things yet to come, but the substance and reality that that spoke of is in Jesus Christ. So all the old covenant was of God, given of God, but it was always intended to be unto Jesus Christ and everything Jesus had to bring. And what Paul is saying here in the early verses of chapter 4 He is saying, you and I, even if we were Jews, were kept under, we read last week, a schoolmaster. It was the law. You and I were kept under tutors and governors to teach us and and show us the holiness of God and the righteousness of God in the form of his law. He's saying all of that was good and it was right, but he's saying when the fullness of time came, Jesus was born to redeem those who were under all of that, birth them anew and make them full-fledged heirs and sons of God. Now, why is, what's the big difference? Mentioned it earlier here a few seconds ago. Mentioned that the big difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament was inward versus outer. Another way to say that or another way to ask the question is, What's the difference between being under the old covenant with all the laws and everything and being a son of God who is an heir with Christ? Well, I think in one sentence it can be described. You must and I must be born again. If you are to become an heir of all that is in Christ, you have to be born into the right family, don't you? You cannot inherit... The things of God, you can't be a co-heir with Christ unless you are born again. Now, this seems like such a, oh, I don't know, elementary principle because we all know this. We all know we need to be born again. But to get a contrast on just how important this is, to show how important it is, I do want to turn for a second back to John 3, where Jesus says you must be born again. In John 3, we have Nicodemus, who was a good guy. He was one of the good Pharisees. In other words, he didn't appear to be one of the Pharisees that hated Jesus. In fact, if we read the passage, it's very clear that something about the preaching of Jesus Christ struck a chord with Nicodemus. Otherwise, why would he come to Jesus asking questions? So Nicodemus had begun to respond to the message Christ preached about the kingdom. Now remember, Nicodemus, as a Pharisee, as one of the leaders, and Jesus calls him, are you a leader in Israel? Nicodemus would have been one of the experts of the Bible of that day. Right in the middle of God's nation, one of God's own people, a Jew. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, He would have known the the Old Testament, didn't have a new at the time. He would have known the Old Old Testament like the back of his hand. He would have known all the scriptures. He would have known all the traditions of the elders. He comes to Jesus as as that expert in the Bible and begins to ask him. 
And the first thing Jesus says to him, doesn't start to talk about the Bible, doesn't talk, start to talk about meanings of Scripture, doesn't talk, start to talk about the church, he doesn't talk, start to talk about any of that. The first thing he says to Nicodemus, just to get the conversation going so there can be some basis, he says, Verily I say to you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And later he says, Except a man be born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In other words, he would say to us, Nicodemus, or any of us, you're wasting your time even trying to understand and dialogue about the things of God in any profound way until you are born again. Now, that tells me a lot about what Christianity is. And it tells me a lot about what it means to become a Christian. First of all, it tells me that Christianity or becoming a Christian is not a matter of adopting a list of tenets to follow or laws or rules. In fact, if there's one thing we've been seeing in Galatians is that you can have all the laws in the world and you can follow them to the letter. But Paul would say to you, you're under a curse if you're under the law only. He would say you have to be born again. Now, Christianity, therefore, can't be a simple matter of you or I saying, oh, here's a bunch of doctrines or here's a list of rules to follow. I think I'll do that. And people sometimes do that and declare themselves Christians. All kinds of reasons why people might say they become a Christian, not putting it down. God knows their heart. But you've got to get at the basis of this kind of a thing and understand what a Christian really is so that you can avoid some of these errors. Some people become Christians because of fire insurance. That's the way it's said sometimes. It's a good way of describing it. In other words, they don't want to go to hell. They have been pounded maybe with fire and brimstone preaching. And so they become a Christian, they say, simply to escape hell. Now, I think sometimes God can approach somebody on that basis. If that's where they are, then maybe God can speak to them in that language, get the ball rolling, and then down the road they can begin to see some more truth and respond for better reasons. So I'm saying, I'm not going to put down any reason why people start to become interested in Christ or in Christianity because we don't know what God's doing there. But simply saying that I'm a Christian to escape hell isn't really where it's at. Because you can do that and never repent. You can do that and never be devoted to Christ. You can try to escape hell, think you're safe, but never have the love of God in your heart. And frankly, most people that are bound in legalism are along that line. They're along that line. I've mentioned a couple times in these messages that essentially what it means to be in legalism or under the law really does boil down to being under a system of rewards and punishments. If you are under a system of rewards and punishments, that's what it means to be under the law. Now, that's really easy to prove. Remember how Paul says to the uh, Romans, he says, you are not under the law, but under grace, Romans 6.14. Last week we read that those who are under the law are under a curse and that Christ redeemed us from the law. Now, put those scriptures together, and the bottom line is that a saved Christian 
is not under the law. I mean, we know that. Paul says it. You are not under the law, but under grace. Okay. If a saved Christian is not under the law, then what does being under the law mean? Because you're not under that. Well, obviously, being under the law can't mean that you have to keep the law. Because Christians aren't free to sin that grace might abound, are we? I mean, is that the definition of a Christian? That we're so forgiven and so saved we can sin and do what we want. That's not the definition of a Christian. So when Paul says you're no longer under the law, he can't mean that you are free to sin against the law. He can't mean that you're free from the standards of God. He can't mean that to be out from under the law is to sin that grace might abound. Of course not. Therefore, what is left? It means that if you're under the law, you're under the condemnation that the law brings. You're under the reward system that keeping the law brings. That's all that's left. And so a Christian is one who is not under a system of rewards and punishments, but, and we'll get more to this in subsequent messages because it's important, I've touched on it last week, a Christian isn't under a system of rewards and punishments, but because you are born again and the law is written on your heart, you don't need to be because you obey God because you love him. Like I mentioned earlier, the new covenant, the definition of it is that God writes his law upon your heart. But see, we generally, some of you may have, but I wasn't, we generally haven't been taught that that's what Christianity is. You and I generally have been taught that Christianity is a belief system that we adopt with rules and laws and a lifestyle and participation at church and preaching the gospel. And somehow in all of that, the very core of Christianity, the fact that you have to receive from above a new life that you weren't born with, it is God's life in you. Somehow that gets pushed to the side. Can we see that to receive from above the life of Jesus Christ, to have God himself dwelling in us, how can that result, if it's real, in a life of sinning that grace might abound? We're talking about entering into something that's supposed to make us a brand new creation in Christ Jesus. We're talking about something that's going to bring us into the full knowledge of God and show us that we have been set free from the power of sin. We're talking about an absolutely revolutionary, world-changing, eternally changing experience with God through Jesus Christ. That's what the new birth is supposed to be. In fact, Jesus is so adamant about that, he says to this great Pharisee here in, in John 3, all the Bible knowledge in the world can't serve as a substitute for life in you said many times, it's, if you ask the question, what is wrong with humanity? What is wrong with the human race for the last 6,000 years? I mentioned last week that it's not found in what we do, it's in what we are. But to be more specific about it, what is wrong with the human race? What is wrong with the human race is that we're dead. 
And we're dead because we don't have God in us. And if you think about that, that makes sense because who is life? God. See, when Adam sinned, he violated God. He rebelled against God. In essence, what he did was he declared his independence from God. Set himself up as his own God. Well, if all life is in God, in God himself, in us, our union with him is life. What happens when you declare your independence from life? Well, you get death, don't you? So the human race is dead, but it's not just a thing unto itself dead. The human race is dead because we don't have life. And we don't have life because we don't have God. And so the only solution to that, the only solution for dead people, is to get life. And that's why when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, nobody comes to the Father except by me. He knew what he was talking about. You can get religion by getting Buddha, Mohammed, Oprah. Can't get life. And it's not a matter of being, God being narrow-minded. It's not a, ma a matter of one religion not being better than the next or as good as the next. It's a matter, the, the point is, Jesus Christ was God. And he alone bore the sin of the world. And he alone is the resurrection and the life. And people can argue about it from now to kingdom come. But at the end, life alone is in Christ. And if you want to live, that's where you're going to go. Now, what's wrong with the human race is that we are dead. There's a lot that comes with death. It isn't just a term that we attach to ourselves. There are characteristics of death. One of the characteristics of death is that you can't see truth. Unless someone is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. Paul writes in Ephesians that the uh, Gentiles walk and live in the vanity or the futility of their mind because it is darkened by the ignorance that is in them. You look around on the street in your community, even people at church, if you're in the wrong kind of church, you will see people that think that they know. There are people actually, in many cases, that think they know about God. Some of them can get real persuasive about it and real demanding about knowing about God. And that person, in many cases, is operating in the absolute futility of their mind. That's all they have to work with. That's what they believe has come from there. And they are absolutely blind to the truth of God in Jesus Christ. But they don't know that. They're in a box that's about an inch square and they don't realize the universe is billions of miles across and our arrogance and our pride tells us we know it, and we don't. And so that's part of death as well. The other part of death is that man was made to be eternally outward toward God in his relationship. He was made to be filled with God, to be outgoing and giving in every way. When you remove God, you're an inward person, you're a selfish person. You know how these vacuum cleaners, some of them have two controls on it. One of them sucks everything in. The other one blows everything out. I don't know if it's a good example or not, but a person who is spiritually dead, well, they suck everything in. And a lot of it is dirt, isn't it? A person that is in Christ blows out more than they suck in, and the best part about it is they're getting their supply from, from God. Again, we're upside down. And because we think we're normal, 
we think we're right side up. And we don't understand how far we've fallen. Well, how does God crack a shell like that? You know, this is what he was getting at here with Nicodemus. You must be born again. If you want to be a son of God rather than a slave, you have to be born again. How is one born again? And what needs to happen? Well, think about it. A person spiritually dead, a person who has no light or truth in them. Lots of people today don't believe that man is born into this world completely void of light and truth. We are. Everything you know about the gospel, you heard. And if it was real, it was the Holy Spirit. You weren't born knowing the gospel. I think sometimes when you grow up in a church, not putting that down, it's great. You can begin to adopt the doctrines and tenets of that church. And if you're not careful, and if you're not nurtured properly, and you're not taught properly, you can think that you were somehow born into Christianity. Because you were born into the right church. It doesn't work that way. It should be an atmosphere where children and kids and young adults come to realize that they personally need to come to terms with Christ and be born again on their own uh, with the help of others, showing them how. So how does God penetrate darkness and penetrate death? Well, Jesus said, no one can come to me except the Father who sent me draw him, John 6.44. God has to initiate a person's calling to Christ. You and I can't do that because we don't have anything to work with to get the ball rolling. Now, once God does initiate our calling to Christ, we can and must, if we intend to be saved, respond. The idea, as Calvinism teaches, that God must supernaturally act upon you and save you without you knowing it, so that only later you can believe in Christ, is error. Calvinism teaches regeneration before faith. That's the summary of the five points of Calvinists. It's openly taught by most Calvinist teachers. It's wrong. It's dead wrong. And it's easy to prove from the Bible. No. When God brings light into the world of an unsaved person, that person, while they are still unsaved, can respond to that light. Sure they can. God will see to it they can. He'll speak in language they can understand. And, there, and if there's a little turning there, God will step up the light a little bit more. Somebody once said, if you think people can't choose while they're unsaved, just watch what they do when they're in danger. Just watch what they do when their rights are violated. You know, people can choose. And all they need to begin to choose toward God is light. And God knows how to bring that. John 3.19 a little later in this chapter, and isn't it amazing how it's the conclusion of this conversation with Nicodemus. It says in verse 19, and this is the basis of condemnation, that light comes into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. How many see that if you weren't able to choose that this verse would be utter nonsense? Jesus is saying that men have the capability of choosing darkness rather than light. That's a choice. As is the choice to choose light rather than darkness. <coughs> and according to this verse, the, the 
pivot point is the deeds. When God brings light into the world of a darkened soul, he has to deal with us right where we are. God can't come into your life as a dead sinner and start preaching advanced theology. That can't save you anyway. What he does is he takes you right where you are, and where you are is lost in sin. And so what he begins to do is expose you as someone who is a dead sinner. And lots of times he'll use the law of God. And it says here, that's the pivot point, you don't want to come into the light because your deeds are evil. In other words, you don't want to be shown for what you are. And so you slink back into the darkness. Fortunately, God is so faithful he'll bring the light some other way if he's calling you to Christ, but it still is up to you whether you're going to respond. This is not a matter of you and I saving ourselves. This is a matter of you and I surrendering ourselves to one who will save us. Now, it's right here, I think, that there is a misunderstanding, and I think this touches on the idea of sonship versus uh, being a slave. We often think of the conviction of the Holy Spirit and God's conviction of us of sin as a terribly negative, awful thing where God's sitting up in heaven saying, you dirty, rotten sinner, turn to Jesus or else, that kind of a thing. <coughs> but that really isn't the full essence of what conviction of sin unto salvation is all about. You and I, if in fact we were born into Adam, weren't responsible for that, and we're going to sin because we were. When light comes, therefore, we begin to see what we've been, and just as much as it does produce a sorrow for our sins, I truly believe that the, that the conviction of the Holy Spirit produces a cry for deliverance from sin. This isn't just about us sinning and then because God's convicted us saying, well, I guess I better not sin anymore. No, this is about us seeing that we are absolutely lost and without hope unless we turn to Christ. And if you read the Bible, you see that this is the theme when God delivered Israel from Egypt. This wasn't a matter of trying to get them to stop sinning so that he could forgive them. It was a matter of him delivering them from captivity. When Adam sinned, he got more than he bargained for, didn't he? It wasn't just that he violated God, he did. It wasn't just that he declared independence from God, he did. But there was a whole crop of uh, reaping that he did along with that. In other words, sure, he walked away from God, but he walked right into the hands of Satan, into the realm of darkness. Colossians 1.13 says that Jesus has delivered us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God. So that tells us right there where we start and from where we are delivered. Spiritually dead people aren't simply standing on neutral ground. Not only does the Bible say we are at enmity against God, we are also in the clutches of darkness. It says the God of this world has mind blinded the mind of those that believe not, that they should not see. No, there's a war going on here. This is about two realms uh, warring for the souls of men. 
And so when God convicts us of sin, this isn't just a matter of us rehearsing all the bad stuff we've done. Yeah, we can do that, and that's good. But it's about us realizing that we never had a chance to begin with because we were born in Adam. That's why teenagers and young people, even though they can't just sit there, a teenager, a young kid, 15, 14, 13, if they want to come to Christ, what are they going to do? Get on their knees and and list all these sins they've committed against God? I mean, I'm sure there are some, but you haven't lived long enough to really do a lot of bad things at that point, I would hope. And if you have, it's probably because you're too young to even know any better in a lot of cases. But a 13, 14-year-old kid, if God's working with them, can say, you know what? I don't have what I need to live. I, I, can't, I don't have God, and I'm lost without him. And that person can turn to Jesus Christ for life. If there's one thing that a spiritually dead person can do, and this is John 3.19 again, a spiritually dead person can't save themselves, they can't gender life, they can't muster enough faith to be saved initially on their own, but a spiritually dead person can drag their spiritually dead self and present it to God. That's all he says to do. The worst person in the world can take their badness and give it to God. And that's all he says to do. Come to me, he says, with all of that, and I will give you life. And so we see there that God initiates salvation, we respond. Now, let's talk a little bit about what happens, because I want to touch today upon what it means to be a Christian and a son of God. What happens when a person does begin to get convicted by the Holy Spirit? Where where does all that eventually go? Well, I think we read a little bit in John 3.19. God begins to show us that our deeds are evil. But further than that, he shows us that we are absolutely empty without him. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That means spiritually bankrupt. I have no assets. For theirs is the kingdom of God. In short, God wants to bring us to the place where we see that we've been lost and we turn back to him. Now that involves a term, and the Bible uses that term often, called repentance. What is repentance? Repentance, the Greek means a change of mind. But it isn't simply a matter that I sit there and start thinking different thoughts and call that a change of mind. Really what it means is a change of moral mind toward God. This is the core of conversion. Conversion doesn't have anything to do initially with changing your lifestyle. Changing your lifestyle is the effect of conversion. Conversion has to do with changing your attitude and your heart toward God himself. I mentioned earlier how the sin of Adam, essentially, was that he declared his independence from God. He said, I'm not going to be under your authority, God. I'm going to be my own authority. Well, you've got to come back the way you left. So in essence, repentance means that I no longer want to live independent from God. And usually it takes some stuff, tough conviction, maybe some tough things in life to get us to the place where we're willing to say we don't want to live independent from God anymore. 
and we say, I want to belong to you, God. I want to come back to that original relationship that you intended to have with Adam, that you intended to have with humanity. Now, if you'll notice that in order to forsake living life on your own terms, in order to get from there back to belonging again to God, you can't do that unless you renounce the old. I can't think it was okay to live in sin and independent from God and then say I'm giving my life to Christ. There's no moral change there, is there? There's just sort of a religious change. And what I'm getting at is this. Now remember, we're not doing this on our own. The Holy Spirit is in us, convicting us in this. It's, a, it's really a miracle that's happening in a supernatural repentance. It says in the Bible, God grants repentance. We're yielding, but he's granting it. We're seeing things we couldn't see otherwise. But we are essentially saying, God, I forever renounce my old life. I renounce my owning myself. And I, I choose to relinquish all that I am, God, into your hands through Jesus Christ. Now, if that's real, and again, God seals that. This is God doing this. We're responding. But God is doing it. If it's real, can we see that we have crossed a line there? We have crossed a moral line. We have crossed something in our relationship with God that is eternal. Bible says we've been born again. He says we have died to that old and the cross of Christ makes that real because we're really being crucified in Christ. Our death then is as real as his, the death of that old man in Adam. And he's saying you are then receiving from above a new life that is not of this world. It's one that is resurrection life in Jesus Christ. Now, put aside for a minute all of the hybrid versions of Christianity and conversion. It's entirely possible to sit in church for 50 years and never even be converted. It's entirely possible to appear to be the most religious person in the world and never even know Christ. We all know that. And there are versions of that on every level that you could want to imagine, and as well as a lot of converted people. We don't want to forget that. But my point is this, put aside all those hybrid possibilities, can we see that the conversion that I've just described, which is the one the Bible describes, if that is real, and it's wrought and responded to the Holy Spirit, can we see that it's not going to result in somebody who sins that grace might abound? If in order to be saved, you have to repent of doing your own thing, is it likely that after you're saved, you're going to do your own thing? I mean, if conversion is real. In other words, if I'm saved, I got that way by settling those issues. Later, am I going to go right back to them? Well, now, people do that say they were saved... And I'm not talking about weaknesses of the flesh and we're all going to sin. That's, we know that. I'm talking about in our relationship with God. If we have committed ourselves to him and we have said, God, I know I'm going to sin. I know I'm going to fall. I'm going to have my doubts. I'm going to have my bad times. But 
I'm going to belong to you. And I know that you'll do in me what is necessary to get me through. And we keep yielding like that. Can we see that there's no way that a person is going to get into this cheap grace thing that people do? There's no way that people are going to, you know, ridicule practically the idea of repentance and the idea of needing to come to the cross if they have in fact come. That's why we say we don't want to judge the hearts of people But when some preacher stands up and he says, well, we preach too much about the need to repent and we don't need to worry about the cross and all that stuff, how likely is it that that person really did repent and come to the cross? I mean, when you belittle things that are the very means of your salvation, The question becomes, were you ever saved? Because you're belittling what you ought to be taking seriously. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says the cross, the preaching of the cross, is foolishness to them that are perishing. And the word there in the Greek is needless. Silly. If I stand up and tell you that the cross is not necessary, the Bible says I'm in the process of perishing. That's the only way I'd say that. Because if I were saved, I would know it is not only essential, but like Paul says, God forbid that I should glory. Save in the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we see that a message reflects a person's personal experience, doesn't it? What doesn't mean anything to them is going to pop out eventually. So God brings us to the cross of Jesus. He says, Jesus paid the price for you. You can enter into life on the basis of being baptized into my son. And really, if you read through John 3 later, you'll see that this is what he's saying. He says a man has to be born of water, which is representative of the cross. It's the death, the burial. And he must be born of the Spirit, or he cannot enter the kingdom of God. He says that which is born of flesh, or in Adam, is flesh. No point in arguing about that, is there? Like I said before, you can dress Adam up, cover him with fig leaves like Adam tried to do, make himself pretty. You can take Adam, give him culture, give him a religion. You can give Adam a good temperament. Somebody once said, if all there was to Christianity was having a good temperament and being nice, we want that, but if that's all there is to Christianity... I'll point you to a nice big cabinet full of drugs. It can accomplish the same thing. And they have those on the market today, if that's all Christianity is. But Christianity is not that. Christianity is a passing away of that old life. Not the possibility of sin, not the presence of sin, but the passing away of the power of sin over you and I and the passing away of that old nature and its, its influence over us, and it is the receiving of new life from above. Paul said to the, I think it was Galatians, later in the book, maybe it, maybe it is, he says, and exactly what is it that you have in Christ that you didn't receive from above, buddy? That's essentially what he's saying to them, because they thought they were hot stuff of all law-keeping. And he says to them, well, what do you have that you didn't, Received by grace. And of course the answer is nothing. So why glory? 
because even your works are the product of his life in you, if you're on the right basis. And so Paul says to Nicodemus, or Jesus said to Nicodemus, it's not theology, although theology explains it and needs to be biblical. It's not religion. What it is, is new life from above. What is salvation? Salvation's life, isn't it? Salvation's not just a legal classification. Salvation is life. If Jesus simply died to give us a new legal classification, now that's included, justification by faith, but if that's all he did, it wouldn't birth us anew, would it? In fact, we could be as Adam, still in Adam, with a new legal classification. And that'd be pretty bad, wouldn't it? Because now we'd be forgiven and all this kind of stuff, but there'd be no life in us. No, Jesus delivered us from sin itself and gave us new life from above. That's why we're in Christ and that's why we are a new creation. Now, that's a lot of background and it took pretty much the whole message. But if you turn back to Galatians, where we were there in chapter 4, all of this really is what Paul is trying to get at with this Galatian church. The Galatian church, as they went along, Paul said, you began in the Spirit. You had this right. You started off on the right basis. You understood, he would say to the Galatians, what Christianity really is. It's new life in Christ. It's a new birth. He says, but... Somebody's come in and corrupted you. Bewitched you, he even said. Who has bewitched you? He says, you're actually under another gospel because you think that Christianity is nothing more than law-keeping. Now, can we see, with everything that I've said today about being born again, the sonship that that involves, being born again into the family of God, can we see how different really that is than simply having a religious, law-keeping kind of a routine here going on and calling that Christianity? On the one hand, we're talking about the power of resurrection life in us. We're talking about being a brand new creation in Christ Jesus. We're talking about being a new, born-again person. Versus thinking we need to earn all of that from God by law-keeping. Thinking that we need to earn salvation or earn reward. No, Paul says, listen, if you have been baptized into Christ, we read here at the end of chapter 3, Galatians, you have put on Christ, and if you are in Christ, then you are. Abraham's seed, you are an heir according to promise. He says, you may have formerly been like a slave, even if it was in a house where you were potentially an heir. He says, but you had no idea about your inheritance. The law couldn't give you that. He says, but 
when the fullness of time came, God sent for Jesus, and he made possible not simply the intellectual grasp of these things as tenants, he made possible the very experiencing of them through himself in Christ. He says, you're no more a servant or a slave, but you are a son. And if you are a son, then you are an heir to all that God has. And he says, and because of that, God has sent forth a spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So who, what is a Christian? A Christian is a son or daughter of God. And because that, a fellow heir with Christ to all that God has. It's not a matter of earning. It's not a matter of rewards and punishments. It's a matter of relationship with God. And as I've said so many times, and I hope by going through that conversion process and talking about that a little bit today, that it becomes more clear. If my conversion is real, then yes, I'm going to have my Romans 7 experiences where I can't do what I want and I do what I don't want to do, like Paul says. I am going to continually, seasonally, come to these places where I say, oh, wretched man that I am. In fact, I would go as far as say, I better be coming to those places. Because that's what the Holy Spirit's going to do in me. He's going to keep bringing me to the place where I see continually, oh, wretched man that I am. Otherwise, we'd get very prideful, wouldn't we? But all that being said, a Christian is a person who nevertheless has a union with Christ and has new life within them to where in the next breath, after we say, oh, wretched man that I am, if my conversion is real, I should be able to say, oh, wretched man that I am, who would deliver me from this body of death? Thank God, Jesus Christ. And then Paul says, well, with my mind I serve the law of sin, but with my heart I serve the law of God. So in other words, a truly converted Christian, regardless of all of our ignorance and our weakness or whatever, a truly converted Christian is devoted, are they not, to Jesus Christ. That's what the conversion process is. It's a matter of becoming undevoted to Christ or devoted to something else and converted over to being devoted to Christ. And if that's real, it's going to result in a holy life. It's going to result in good works. It's just going to get there. Somebody once compared the Christian growth process, and I think Jesus does this. He speaks of it about himself. If you think about your Christian life as a seed that has been planted in the ground, at first, it doesn't look like there's anything there, does there? And actually, the first thing that has to happen is there has to come some breaking of that shell underground. And then the, the little thing, the little plant starts to break through the soil and come up. And it can be dirty business. It's a messy business originally because your sins are being exposed, you're failing. But it gets there. Life comes out of that death. And so a truly converted Christian is going to be characterized by the fact that they're devoted to Christ through thick and thin. 
And that's one of the traits of a son of God. And there are others that I'll get to, not today. So the difference between a servant is one who can't really experience all of the inheritance of God yet because they're under a different system, if I can put it that way, rewards, punishments, works. But a son is one who is born again of Christ into the family of God and is an heir and has already begun to experience some of what God has for him.